everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. Today's discussion is going to focus on no-fly zones. We're all aware of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and there's been much discussion about implementing a no-fly zone over Ukraine so that Russian aggression can be deterred. There's been a lot of discussion on this topic, and I thought, who better to ask about no-fly zones than the former commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force? It doesn't get any higher than that. So I'd like to welcome back to the show Lieutenant General Yvonne Blondin. General, thank you so much for being back on Go Bold. Hello, Jyoti. That's uh, nice to be back talking to you again. Thank you, sir. So uh, I'm sure you've heard, like I have, you know, what's been happening in, in Ukraine is is extremely sad, very troubling. Um, and what Representative Kinzinger had uh, proposed, um, like, boy, it would be nice if it were possible, but I, I would love to hear your thoughts about no-fly zones in general, and you're not in government, you don't make policy, so... Um, whether or not that happens or not is a different story, but love to hear your thoughts about no-fly zones in general. It's a, it's a great question. I'm sure um, a lot of your listeners have uh, heard about no-fly zones and uh, and uh, consider this. This has been um, probably a a great term for the last 25 years of operations in uh, in Yugoslavia and uh, in Iraq, uh, in Afghanistan, in in Libya, and all over the place. With all those uh, those operations, we had some form of a no-fly zone. So why don't we do it for Ukraine? Right. Well, you see, a no-fly zone is imposed by somebody. Somebody has to decide. Okay, nobody else is flying here. In order to decide this, you have to be able to enforce it. Right. So it's. It's easy to, to say over Afghanistan that you're imposing a no-fly zone because there's nobody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, when NATO was there with American airplanes and European airplanes, and to say that nobody else is going to fly, it was easy. Nobody else had, the, had airplanes. So if you have air supremacy, which means you're controlling everything in the sky, you can impose a no-flying zone and nobody else is going to fly because, because they have to listen to you because they can be shot down. Right. You can do that in Yugoslavia or smaller countries. When, when you have an overwhelming force, you can impose your will. You can say, nobody else flies. And nobody else does because they're afraid of the consequences. Over Ukraine, first thing to do if, uh, if NATO, the US, or somebody would want to impose a no-flying zone, and by the way, Russia could be doing the same and saying, I'm imposing a, a no-flying zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, all it means if you're imposing this is that you've got the means and you intend to, to enforce it. It doesn't mean that everybody else has to respect it. Right. Yeah, true. Uh, so if Russia wants to impose a no-fly zone, probably commercial airplanes will stay out of there because they don't want to be shot. But mm-hmm. Ukraine would still want to fly its airplanes and wants to defend itself. Right. And if uh, somebody else wanted to help Ukraine and defend it, well... They'd go in there and say, well, try to stop me, Russia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that would be it. So the idea of enforcing a no-flying zone means that you, uh, you are telling everybody, stay away or I'll shoot you and, uh, and hope nobody else uh, comes around. Now, if NATO wanted to do this, first, 
NATO's airplanes, U.S. airplanes and all this would come from somewhere else and would be flying out of a, an airport, uh, an airfield that would be close by Ukraine in order to be flying over Ukraine to impose and, and make sure it is uh, enforced. If you do this and you move your, your, uh, your aircraft close to, uh, to, to Ukraine and the, the countries close by, Poland, Baltic countries, uh, Bulgaria it could be one of those countries, uh, you're risking a conflict with Russia. Uh, the first time you're doing this, the other country, Russia, would, uh, would take this as uh, you're, you're going farther, you're getting into the conflict. You're actively uh, putting your, your assets now into the conflict. If you're saying you're imposing a, uh, a no-flying zone, that means you are willing to fly your airplanes over Ukraine in, in a country where, where I'm saying I have uh, jurisdiction and I'm, I'm moving my, uh, my army. You are threatening my forces on the ground, therefore I will shoot your airplanes. Russia would never accept a no-fly zone over Ukraine on top of its forces. So the day you're doing this, you're, uh, you're starting an offensive uh, conflict with Russia. NATO would be in open conflict with Russia. And this is what NATO is trying to avoid. Right. NATO, the US, all the forces have said, we will do everything short of stepping into Ukraine. So NATO doesn't want to get involved. And imposing a no-fly zone would be getting involved actively into the conflict. Yeah. And as yep. soon as you're doing this, then everything is uh, is a free game. It means that uh, Russia to defeat uh, to defeat an air threat, which a no-fly zone imposition would be, mm-hmm. means you're shooting down airplanes that are over there, or you could shoot down and the easiest way to shoot down the airplane is actually shooting them down when they're on the ground. Right. So you shoot them where, where they land, which would be in countries close to, to Ukraine, where the, uh, the, the forces are stationed. And now you're into an open conflict, not just in the air, but on the ground as well. So you're escalating. No-fly zone is a clear escalation of the conflict. That's why nobody wants to do it. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And um yeah, nobody wants a conflict. Nobody wants Russia in in Ukraine. And um, but I think what uh, Representative Kinzinger was propo- uh, whether he was proposing or just kind of throwing it out there as an idea, um, I think it was a sincere idea. But I think the reality of trying to enforce a no fly zone is probably a non starter. It seems like. Absolutely. You see, uh, well, we had a no-fly zone of Iraq, but that's because anybody that had airplanes uh, agreed to it. The Russians were there and uh, the Syrians, uh, the Americans, uh, NATO forces, uh, Iraqis, uh, we, we wouldn't be able to do this over Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I appreciate your perspective on that, General. Thank you. And uh, yeah, uh, I think it would just open up a huge can of worms. Um, uh, on a similar tact, um, what is your assessment of how air power has been used from what you've just seen in media? Uh, well, from what I've seen, uh, Russia has modernized their air force in the last 20 years. They have learned from the U.S. They have observed what the U.S. has done uh, in the uh, in the Middle East uh, in the last 25 years, starting with, uh, with Baghdad in 1990. They have uh, learned from the, uh, the air structure uh, in the West and uh, pretty much mimicked it. Uh, 
And what I've seen uh, from Russia is uh, similar to what we've seen in uh, other conflicts before, where the uh, the Americans would use uh, long-range uh, missiles to uh, to take care of defense uh, structures down, followed by uh, by the Air Force uh, trying to uh, reduce. Uh, the enemy uh, air forces and defense uh, systems, and uh, you've got ground forces coming uh, coming through. Uh, it, it's not like it was very difficult for Russia. It was they had a ten to one advantage uh, on the air side and on the uh, on the ground and everything. Uh, they they have uh, overwhelming forces uh, over over Ukraine. Uh, and now there there is there is a restraint the russia is not throwing everything at uh, at ukraine uh, they they're trying to not destroy everything because they still want that economy to function and it's much easier to control uh, ukraine that has not been uh, been demolished and uh, and and uh, the population destroyed uh, and this is what russia is hoping to do to take control with the least amount of damage so mm-hmm. we're seeing we're seeing some uh, restraint, but as uh, frustration mounts, if uh, if they cannot achieve their objective, they're going to be increasing the pressure. And Russia has much more to offer. They, in my mind, they they cannot lose this. It's just a matter of time. Wow, that's that's it's sad to hear. Uh, I think your assessment is spot on uh, from everything that that I've researched. But uh, sad to hear because uh, obviously. This is an invasion of a sovereign country, and um, and they're trying their best. The Ukrainians are trying their best to repel, but um, when you're facing that those numbers um, against you, it's going to be an extremely difficult difficult fight. Um, it, it, it is. Uh, I feel for for the people on the ground, but it's not a conflict that can be resolved militarily. If uh, if NATO would uh, would start moving to this and try to resolve it militarily, there are too many chances of escalation. And uh, Putin has painted himself in a corner now. Mm-hmm. He cannot back down. He has to just increase the pressure until he's controlling Ukraine. He cannot lose this. And uh, trying to stop it, uh, to stop him would uh, run the chance of escalating this into some other border countries, because he'd love to uh, bring back the Baltic countries back into the the Russian uh, influence sphere. Mm -hmm. So what do you make of uh, NATO energizing their, the NATO response force? This is the first time it's ever happened. It's posturing. I think everybody's hoping that uh, Russia is not... uh, not going to get too far. I don't think uh, uh, there's a, there's a very serious movement to move enough forces to militarily ensure that Russia is not moving beyond Ukraine. I think right now it's uh, they're into messages only. They're into posturing. I am sending some forces. You cannot move into uh, into other countries other than Ukraine. You have to stop there. And everybody is hoping that Putin is going to be smart enough to stop there. But if uh, if Putin wanted to move further, he could right now easily move into Poland, into the Baltic countries, and it would take time for NATO to actually mount a robust defense mm-hmm. and get back into it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it speaks then general to some of the some of the problems that Western nations face when considering a near peer or a peer adversary uh, like Russia, 
potentially like China, uh, where they have lots of numbers. And uh, the numbers on Western Air Forces, like, I mean, perhaps the U.S. Air Force uh, notwithstanding, or the U.S. Navy for that matter, um, you know, uh, fighter fleets are smaller. Combat aircraft uh, fleets are smaller. So how do you make up for that? Yeah, I guess for all Western countries, it's it's been for the last uh, last forty years. It's been a reduction in numbers based on on the threat. I remember in the nineties, two thousand era, uh, the assessment was that uh, Russia was not a threat anymore. Mm-hmm. For Russia to become a threat, it would take twenty five years of rebuilding. So we could safely reduce our number of military forces we had built under NORAD and put the money somewhere else. And this is what we did. Mm-hmm, right. It's, it's risk assessment. What Putin has done in the last 10 years rebuilding his, his uh, military forces is remarkable. Hmm. Nobody expected 10 years ago that Putin would be at the point where he would be using his military again. Maybe we're naive. Maybe we, uh, we didn't want to believe this. Maybe we didn't want to look at this. Maybe we thought that uh, the, the threat was moving towards China and the, uh, the uh, Asian uh, theater, but we didn't prepare for this. And now we're, everybody's surprised at what Putin is doing and what, what he could actually do. If uh, 15 years ago, the meetings in NATO were about, uh, is NATO still required? What do we do now to ensure that we still have, uh, uh, there's still a role for NATO? Well, uh, there's no question anymore. There's, there's still a role. Yeah, yeah that's a, yeah. But now I guess... it needs to go from having moved towards more of a political entity back into a military entity. And this is not easy to do. Hmm. All the promises of, uh, of what I could do militarily for NATO uh, it's not necessarily backed by real capabilities from the different countries right now. And you're speaking not only, uh, I suspect, not only of the, the monetary investment, but also the equipment. Oh, yes. And, and uh, I'll talk just about Canada. We, uh, we have a commitment towards NATO. Well, there's no way we could fill this commitment right now. It would be very, very difficult Mm-hmm. We don't have the forces, we don't have the airplanes, we don't have the pilots, we don't have the capabilities. Right now, if we, uh, well, for, for the last 25 years, the most we were able to do was to, uh, to sustain 12 airplanes, 12 F-18s deployed. And that was during the, uh, the hot period uh, of the ex-Yugoslavia, where NATO took, uh, took an, active, uh, an active part, where well, we had 12 F-18s deployed outside the country. Our capability with our fighter force right now is to be able to sustain six airplanes. That's it. Six airplanes deployed to fly four out of the 76 airplanes we have. To do more than this would mean stop doing the fourth generation, the basic training. We could send more airplanes, but it would mean stop doing the stuff to be able to regenerate from from back home. We could increase it, but it would be a temporary measure. We would not be able to sustain it. And Canada's not alone. Uh, there are many other countries that, that on paper are supposed to be able to provide forces and, and we just did not keep up with all this. 
So this is a perfect spot to pause for a quick moment and acknowledge our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Fighter pilot training is provided in part by Cubic, who provides air combat maneuvering instrumentation, or ACMI. For those that aren't familiar with ACMI, think about the movie Top Gun and where Maverick and Charlie are viewing a screen that recreates what happened in a dogfight. That's the technology that Cubic provides to allied air forces around the world. Fighter pilots train like they fight, so Cubic's technology allows these pilots to debrief in such a way that everyone sees exactly what happened so that everyone gets the most out of each mission. That's just one of the impressive technologies and services that Cubic provides, so we thank them for their support and we encourage you to learn more about them at cubic.com. Now back to our show. You raise a really interesting point, General, and I know that you have mentioned it to me uh, previously, but I would love for you, if you don't mind, to kind of rehash it with our listeners here. Um, how many pilots do you need to, to deploy a certain force? So in the context, you know, you're familiar, you're intimately familiar with the Royal Canadian Air Force. So, um, you know, when you consider training, deploying, um, all of the different things, how do the pilot numbers work vis-a-vis aircraft numbers? Well, if, if you have enough pilots, you would want to have a three to one ratio. Let's say I'm deploying six airplanes. Okay. I would want to have 18 pilots. Okay. Ideally, to deploy deploy out there, that's eighteen trained pilots, fully qualified. They can go. Uh, they are combat ready. They can go out. So that with six airplanes, I can fly four of them, maybe twice or maybe three times a day. So I can fly between eight and twelve sorties a day, and I can sustain this. Six airplanes gives me always two airplanes that could be broken, could be in maintenance, or but. I've got room to play with. So this is what you need to have to be sustaining something. And this is the typical force that we we deployed in Iraq, that we deployed in uh, for Libya, that we deployed in Yugoslavia, we deployed in uh, in many places. To have 18 pilots out and deployed, you would not want to keep them away more than three months. Then they need to come back home and you need 18 more pilots to replace them. So if you have 18 pilots deployed, you need 18 pilots preparing to deploy to replace them. So that's 36 fully combat ready F-18 pilots to fly six airplanes. Mm. If you've got 36, you've got 18 deployed, 18 preparing to deploy. Well, when those 18 guys who have deployed for three months come back home, you've got 18 pilots who are deploying now. Well, the 18 pilots that just came back do not the next day you're going to be back in the squadron. You need to give them some leave time. Some of right. them will need to, uh, to, to get back into courses and do some other things. So right. ideally, you want to have three groups so that you have a rotation. One group of pilots that came back and are now recovering and covering the stuff that needs to be done back home, 18 pilots preparing to go, and 18 pilots that are in theater. So to support a six-pack, you need ideally 54 Fully combat ready pilots. That's fully combat ready, right? Yes. Wow. Now, if you've got 18 preparing to go, you've got 18 flying there and 18 coming back and they're on leave and uh, doing doing all this stuff. Who's flying back home? <laughs> who's doing the NORAD stuff? Right. Who's, who's actually training your new pilots? 
who's yeah. flying with them? Good oh, question. And, in Canada, we have four operational squadrons, and hopefully they are manned with about 20 pilots each. So that's 80 operational pilots. And you have a, a training squadron that has 25 fully combat-ready pilots, but they are busy all the time at training some new pilots being qualified. So you're really counting on, the, uh, on a group of about 80 pilots in the squadrons. But in a squadron, out of 20 pilots, four or five of them are just brand new guys. They just showed up on squad. They are not combat ready yet. Right. So you're really counting on 15 guys. Right. If, if they're all there, if they're not on a course somewhere, if they're not deployed for some other reason, if they're not supporting, and if the squadron is fully filled. Mm. So now today... Uh, fighter forces uh, is filled at somewhere between 85 and 90 percent. So out of uh, 20 positions on the squadron, you can really count on maybe 17, 16, 17 pilots per squadron. Mm-hmm. The four or five new guys are always going to be there because they're the new guys who have just been produced a year before from the OTU, from mm-hmm. the operational training unit, and showing mm-hmm. up in training. Mm-hmm. The ones that you don't have are the operational guys. So uh, you may have 12 or 13 pilots operational, fully combat ready that you can use for deployment. Let's, let's, let's be optimistic. And uh, let's say there are 14 of them per squadron. That's 56 pilots total. How many guys did we need? Did we say we needed to be, uh, to be doing a good rotation? 54. 54. <laughs> That's an ideal rotation to be doing this. If you're doing this, who is training and supporting, taking care of all your new pilots you've got on squad, the four or five guys that you need to train and bring to a combat-ready status? Mm-hmm. Who's doing alert for NORAD? Who's doing all the other uh, tasks? So to support six is difficult, and usually we don't do it with the full uh, an ideal number. Uh, if we can uh, get the two-to-one ratio, it's, it's, it's really a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so instead of deploying 18, uh, we may deploy 18 if we're going to be doing operational missions and, and we absolutely need it, but we can't sustain it. So wow. uh, all this to say that uh, a six-pack is about the most we can sustain with the forces we have. Now, I'm not going to get into numbers for, for what's required under uh, our, our NATO commitments, mm-hmm. but it's more than six. And, and we can't get, uh, get any close into, uh, we, we may be able to, to deploy all this, there isn't be nothing left back home, and we could not be sustained at, uh, sustaining it. You, you would not have a force to replace it. So uh, uh, numbers are not there. The numbers are not there. Um, and it just begs me to ask you, um, the next uh, fighter fleet that Canada is looking to acquire is 88 aircraft. Um, so how many pilots do we need to 88 aircraft are not going to be operational at any, all of them at any given time, you're going to have aircraft and maintenance and what have you. But, um, like, I mean, I think now with Canada's existing fighter fleet and then the aircraft that Canada has bought from Australia, I think that gets us up into the mid nineties in terms of numbers, but I don't think that we have the pilots. If we don't have 90 pilots. We don't, right. 
<laughs> don't have 90 pilots right so. <laughs> no we, we don't have we don't have that number of pilots and i'm saying this about canada but canada is not alone there are right. other countries we all did the same thing the commitments we had with nato did not change over time but i approached those commitments in the 90s and early 2000s changed mm. and we said chances are we're never going to need to meet this because NATO is never going to be into a full war scenario again. Because although those numbers were based on the conflict with, uh, uh, with the Soviet Republic at the time. Sure. It was right. based on a conflict between East and West. Right. And the commitments were based on just going to be a big war. Mm-hmm. In the early 2000s, nobody believed the big war would happen again. That scenario was the way the numbers were still there. The commitments were still there from the countries, but we all readjusted saying, well, okay, if ever it's required, well, we'll do what we can. But mm. in the meantime, there's no sense in, in, in keeping such a huge force. So we, we closed our bases in, the, in, in Europe. We went from 138 uh, F-18s. Uh, we, we had, uh, what, six uh, operational squadrons at the time. We went down to, uh, to four. We, uh, we reduced the fighter force uh, to somewhere around uh, 88 uh, airplanes at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did this consciously. Right. We, we all said those are peace dividends. Yes, we can right, reduce right. our forces. Sure. Well, this is where we are now. So now if we want to increase and, and, and if we believe there, there's a, a threat again from, uh, from Russia, we're going to have some buildup to do and we're not alone. It's mm-hmm. uh, the, whole, uh, the whole NATO structure needs to be, uh, to be reviewed and, uh, and many countries need to recommit into this. It's a sobering thought, General. Uh, very sobering, but it is. Um, I think what you have shared is uh, wonderfully put because it puts it all out there on the table <laughs> of, of how complex yeah. this issue is and and what it takes to get a combat force to deploy. Yeah. Like you say, a six pack requires a lot more than just six pilots. <laughs> but at the same time, we got to put this in perspective. Hmm. What the commitment was based on Soviet forces at the time before sure. the collapse of the soviet union right now, mm-hmm. russia has a great force but it's certainly not at the level where the soviet was before sure russia can easily overwhelm ukraine but it it would face a uh, a potent adversary if it wanted to tackle nato even a a drawn down nato like it is today it would right. take time for nato to get back into it posture itself for this, regroup, but NATO forces are still, when you put all those countries together, uh, a force that Russia can, cannot match. Hmm. And th- that is reassuring. It, it is a formidable force. There's no doubt about it. I think I read just recently there was around 100 and in the low hundreds, 120 some odd fighters that are, um, that are available to NATO straight away. Yes, and within uh, days or weeks, there would be a lot more. The force available is there. It would take time. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the problem is, for the first few days, Russia could easily take back the Baltic uh, countries if it wanted. It could get into Poland. It could get into a position where it would be difficult to uh, take them out of. 
and it would be uh, it would be an escalation that would easily bring a stalemate that eventually would bring somebody like Mr. Putin uh, into considering the nuclear option. So because you don't have the forces to be uh, to be fighting a conventional war, that it would soon come to to an escalation that nobody wants to see. And, yeah. and, and that's scary. That it's very, very scary. And um, as you know, if any, if any, uh, like the Baltic states, if any of them were invaded, you know, they could declare Article Five, and NATO has to come to their defense. And absolutely, uh, absolutely. And once we do this, and, and NATO starts cranking up, and now you start having uh, having a, uh, a superior force that's pushing towards the Baltic. Uh, the only way that uh, that uh, Mr. Putin could uh, could keep this would be into threatening to go where he thinks NATO would not want to go, mm-hmm. and that's the scary part. That's very very scary. Well, thankfully, at least from what what is publicly available, you know, we don't see any buildup of forces along the Baltic states at the moment. Like it's not to say that Russia doesn't have more forces than what's amassed against no, I, the Ukraine, yeah. but. No, I, I, I do not believe uh, that this is the intent. I, I do believe that uh, uh, I do believe Mr. Putin is is an intelligent man, and he's uh, gambling. He can get uh, the Ukraine back. He would have liked to get Ukraine back under control without using his forces. Uh, this is what he tried to negotiate. He tried to uh, to to gain from uh, NATO. Didn't get it. Didn't get obedience from Ukraine, and he's trying to enforce it. I believe this is only objective. If he can get Ukraine under control, everything is fine. And he's hoping that uh, this is going to stay like this. He's going to weather months of uh, economic sanctions and hoping that uh, within a couple of years, everything would be back to normal. And Mm -hmm. he would have uh, kept NATO out of Ukraine, out of being so close to Russia. I do not believe he's got any more objectives than this. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's hope that there's some diplomatic resolution that can come from all this, and and hostilities can cease because that would be the best scenario for everybody involved. But um, I guess time will tell, General. You know, and uh, maybe we'll reconvene and we'll discuss where things are and uh, see where where things have developed. And what's sad into all this is that there's in the short term there's no good scenario for Ukraine. Right. Yes. For Ukrainians. Yeah. And that is, that is the, that is sad. That's the tragedy of all of this. Absolutely. Very, very sad. Well, General Blondin, thank you so much for your insight, sir. I greatly appreciate it. Um, uh, I've learned some stuff today and, (laughs) and uh, it it is enlightening, but I think, I think it's worth hearing and people should know some of these things. It's uh, it's one thing to say that you have an air force, but how effective is the air force really depends on the people. Like it, like always, it's always about the people. Yes, yes. And, uh, and numbers. So, and count. I, I hope I didn't leave an impression that the uh, the Canadian Air Force is is not effective and cannot do the job. Uh, no, not at all. It's it's uh, we have what we pay for, and uh, in Canada we do not want to invest into a huge military force, and this is what we have. It's, it's great as a peacetime force. It's great at uh, participating into coalition forces, but it's a small force. Right. Yep. I think that's a very fair statement. It's a small force. And so therefore, you know, you have to be realistic in what you can do with it. Nope. 
General Blunden, it's uh, again, always a pleasure to chat with you. I appreciate your insight and I'm looking forward to the next time that we are able to discuss this and hopefully it'll be, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate hostilities ending, I hope. Oh, it's great talking to you, Jyoti. Really Thank appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for contacting me. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. I look forward to chatting with you again. That, my friends, is Lieutenant General Yvonne Bladen, former commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Thanks, everybody. Hope to have you join us again on another episode of Go Bold. Thanks. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.